this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Grant Marks, who is Principal and Head of Business Development at Atlantic Street Capital. Grant, over to you. I would love to hear, number one, you look a little bit more energetic than I would have anticipated for a new father. So let's start there with the life update. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Jordan. Happy to be here uh, and happy to have a brief moment of respite away from a seven-week-old for uh, about an hour or so. So, uh, yeah, that's that's been occupying some of my time during uh, during COVID and, uh, and the rest has been working on Atlantic Street stuff. So, all good. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's see how this goes in the next uh, 15, 20 minutes or until one of us falls asleep <laughs> due to mutual sleep deprivation. You got I one, yeah, I got two. It, so. <laughs> so, I'd love to start off with Atlantic Street. What's the high level on Atlantic Street? What's the history? Yeah, so we've been around for about 15 years, focused on lower middle market investing in founder, entrepreneur, family-owned businesses that can benefit from operational support and resources. And the way that we provide those resources is really as a service provider uh, through a network of 20-plus operating advisors that uh, can provide functional support, provide strategic guidance, provide oversight. These are folks who have run, you know, big companies and can provide kind of the experience of having run middle market, you know, large cap businesses and show lower middle market businesses how to get there. And all of the, you know, people, processes and, and systems uh, investment that's required along the way. So what has it been like doing deals in COVID? Um, a lot of time on Zoom like this. Uh, the, the particular deal that we had closed is one that we had uh, tracked and, and known and visited and had uh, some exposure to prior to lockdown and, and kind of, uh, you know, mid-March. So we had that benefit, which was good. Um, you know, uh, it, it was a category that we had spent a lot of time uh, underwriting and, and trying to find uh, platforms in. So uh, in that regard, you know, not a lot of kind of, diligence work required on market or, or industry. Uh, and so, you know, really it was, it was just a matter of kind of taking the 95% of the work that we had done up front and, and taking that last ball and, and getting it uh, across the finish line. So um, uh, all good there. And, and a couple of things that we're working on in the meantime that are probably uh, more relevant to the question. It, it's, you know, there are workarounds and, and I think everyone's getting used to working remotely and trying to figure it all out. Yeah, it was interesting. I was just on a global private equity challenges and opportunities fireside chat. And one of the things that Bob had mentioned and others kind of echoed is that deals are getting done, but they're either with assets that are, have been tracked pre COVID or if they are done without any uh, onsite or minimal onsite, those are for add-ons. And yeah. And so it's been interesting to see that trend. Um, but I've, I think one of the things I'm curious about is when you go through a crisis, you kind of really see who people are. And I'm interested to see, you know, especially with you and your wife and your first kid, can you talk to the culture of Atlantic Street and, you know, the, I don't know, 
uh, for lack of a better phrase, the true colors that you have seen with people experiencing going through this crisis. And you're like, oh my God, like, this is why I do this. Or that's what an operating partner really does in a crisis and working with yeah. teams. But I'm just kind of curious, like what, what's the culture been and what have you seen in the past months, like during this crisis? Yeah, I, I would say uh, certainly it tested the mettle of our operating partners, our operating advisors uh, in the first, you know, six, eight weeks, March, April, parts of May. Um, and, and, you know, as investors, as business development professionals, you kind of, you start to get a little bit siloed over time and, and um, you know, functionally you're, you're doing one of a few things every day and all of a sudden this sort of event happens and everything is all hands on deck for everyone, right? So I might be helping, you know, on any given day with navigating our investor discussions or, uh, you know, working through issues with some of our lenders or, you know, at any given moment, hopefully bringing in some new deals that are creatively sourced or, or off market. Um, you know, as a firm, I think the, the positive of this is that we have really quickly adapted to working remotely and kind of it, it's helped even in some ways with communication, with consistency. Um, it's definitely given a lot of people an appreciation for uh, you know, what folks at the senior level at our firm do, um, you know, what folks on the operating side do. Um, and, you know, in many ways, our associates are working as hard or if not harder than they've ever worked. So um, it's, it's been, it's been interesting. I, I personally have spent, tried to spend more of my time, you know, I have, I have someone who works underneath me, um, trying to kind of mentor him and, and spend time with him because, you know, times during this, you know, I, I had capacity and it was hard actually in some ways to see, you know, so many folks from our firm being so stretched um, and, you know, to be in a position where I could spend time, I wanted to make sure I made good use of it. I was like trying to consult with and, and be a, a good kind of mentor to, um, to, to Joe Solano, who, who works for me. What's the, you know, maybe rewinding a little bit, how did you get to where you're at? What's, what's the career path that you've taken? Yeah, so I came out of school in 2009. I forget, or when, when were you? 2007. 2007, all right. So similar vintage, but um, <laughs> 09 was- Vintage, uh, yeah. okay. we're going it's with it. <laughs> 09 was tough. Um, I graduated into some um, uh, of circumstances where I was looking for jobs in finance, thinking that that was, you know, my next career path. Like that's, you know, that's what you have to do. You have to spend four years at a good school and then you have to go into banking and then banking to private equity. And uh, the reality was that wasn't going to happen for me. Um, I, uh, so I wound up taking a job actually at the district attorney in Manhattan and uh, I was doing white collar crime investigation work as a paralegal for a year. Um, Wait, hold on. What did you study in college and how did you go from, I'm going to be going into banking to, no, I'm going to go to the DA's yeah. office. <laughs> uh, so I, was, I was an economics major in college and I, uh, I definitely had no clue that I was going to go work for the DA uh, going through four years uh, at school. But um, 
I had a really good friend who actually wound up working for them. He wound up becoming an investigator uh, with the DA, and then uh, he wound up working uh, for the Bureau. So he, he went a different route, um, but he kind of counseled me, and he was like, listen, if you're looking for a job that's kind of finance adjacent, where <laughs> you might be able to really go hide for like a year or two, kind of, uh, you should think about it and, and maybe you choose to go to law school. That was something that probably half of my uh, paralegal class wound up doing. They were so, so gung-ho on going back to law school. I was like, this is not, not you. me at all. Um, <laughs> but uh, going through that, that process of kind of uh, investigating you know, white-collar criminals I remember there was like one particular case where I was uh, so obsessed with uh, this woman's check kiting scheme. She had like this very complex um, check kiting uh, operation that she had set up and she was, um, she was almost getting away with it uh, until you know, we got a tip and I poured through her financial records. I poured through the seven different operating companies that she had set up to do it. Um, and I really loved getting into the weeds of like, yes, trying to figure out if this woman was, you know, basically a 20 year career criminal, but also, you know, just interested in watching like the, the flow of funds and, and how she was moving money from one place to another to try to hide the fact that she had basically wiped out her credit cards here, here and here, and then set up new credit cards here, here and here. So it was, uh, that was really cool. But what it, you know, led me to is, yeah, I, I really want to be on the on the finance side. I got lucky in a lot of ways. Um, when Bob Landis came calling, they were looking for an analyst on the on Riverside's origination team. I was kind of before just, we go to that because yeah, yeah. I, I really want to focus on. Yeah, I want to rewind and I want to talk about the white collar crime. Yeah, yeah. She, how, she got convicted. Don't worry. <laughs> how how many cases were you on? I mean, I just find it fascinating. Yeah the like how do you discover crimes and where did like how do you come into the process how long does it take for certain types of crime how many cases were you on so uh, personally very few i was there for about a year and my purview was so um focused the check kiting thing was one very isolated case most of what i spent my time on was um issues surrounding uh, wire fraud uh, that was coming from uh, dollars that were processed on behalf of Iranian and Korean companies, so sanctioned countries that were processing U.S. dollars through New York banks, which is a big no-no. So um, we were, and the way that you find out about that stuff is uh, someone who has interests either uh, in making sure that Iran is not doing that or Korea is not doing that or some other, you know, not so great country, Venezuela is, is not doing those things. Um, they usually file some sort of anonymous reports um, and those reports wind up filtering to the appropriate entities. And, and that's how um, the Manhattan DA wound up actually getting a bunch of um, uh, their uh, financial crimes cases uh, through the late 2000s. 
if you go back and look at um, you know big settlements that the DA had with Credit Suisse, with Barclays, with uh, UBS, kind of big foreign banks that process U.S. dollars through New York-based um, uh, uh, headquarters, uh, they they wound up settling for huge dollars because basically what had happened is their um, their compliance department was kind of looking the other way at the original source of, of funds. So um, that was, that was cool. I, I can't, it, it's so interesting. I can't even share uh, who some of the folks were that kind of pointed out where this stuff was coming from. Cause it was like cloak and dagger, like ex Mossad, you know, coming in and, and trying to um, protect their country sort of stuff. But uh, what do you think that, you know, you had, you had a, I mean, a year plus of exposure there, but you got to get a glimpse at criminals. And what do you think are some of the motives behind the type of criminal activity that you investigated? And why do people... To ask a dumb question, why do people commit crimes? Why do people commit white collar crimes when they know that it's not the right thing to do? Why do people commit white collar crimes? Yeah. What a good question. I, I'm so. I was more personally fascinated by people who, so, so setting aside like the, you know, is Iran trying to purchase ruggedized computer equipment from Taiwan using U.S. dollars? That's, I, not that I don't care. Obviously, I spent a lot of time like pouring through, you know, people's email records and phone records to try to find out if that stuff was happening and why. Um, but I was more interested in, you know, the guy who had set up four shell corporations that uh, probably knew that his or her uh, fate was going to be met at some point. You know, there was like a, only a point to which, you know, someone can list their company on the pink sheets and not actually have any real, you know, business operations um and they're falsifying you know uh records every year right that there's there's an end in sight so i was more interested in like the equivalent of like the madoff motivation right and is it it's greed it's uh it's arrogance it's obviously um a little bit of kind of something broken in, in some cases. Like I, I remember sitting across from this one person and trying to understand and she was crying and I could tell that she was like not sincere in her crying. She was crying because she was coming in for a settlement and she knew that she had to go to jail. She wasn't sad that like she had built people for hundreds of thousands of dollars. She was just sad that she was caught. I wonder what it is in their lives that lead them to that point when they know that they're doing something wrong, they know that they are harming other people and how that motivate, what is greed? Like greed, I, I want something I don't have. 
Yeah. And like, because all, all, you can make the argument also within investing, people are motivated to some extent yeah. by greed, but it's not a, it's not so overwhelming or maybe we're just not hearing the stories about it. But I think that yeah. I think in, in, I think particularly in the lower middle market, you're, you're working so closely with the management and you have to know the operations, especially now, even if you just want to be competitive in a process, yeah. it's no longer we're across the river and we're on the 50th floor and we talk in quarterly board meetings and we're, there's a much different relationship, but I'm wondering just then, I don't know, sorry, just having like a little epiphany here about like the nature of greed and, 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 wa and wanting something to that level, to that extent that you're well, willing. If it is even like a disproportionate, you know, number of people, like I, I think through, um, yes, we, we exclusively prosecuted folks, right? And that's probably 0.01% of the population, right? But I would venture to guess that 0.01% of lower middle market, middle market, private equity deals involve some degree of fraud or mismanagement or, you know, misrepresentations at least, right? So like, it's not like it's exclusive to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. You know, I, I've been in this industry for over 10 years now, and I think I've lost track of the amount of times where you have a spin out yeah. and then there's always fighting, whether it's formal or informal on and, and I've always wondered like why former employer who controls billions yeah. is so worried about pursuing somebody and who's raising their first fund who worked hard for them for five or ten years yeah. as opposed to a different narrative which is you know what I'm gonna do everything I can to help you and I really appreciate what you did and this kind of, and having a blue ocean mentality, is there really that limited amount of deals that they would be competing for? So I, I, I talk about this with uh, Jeremy all the time. So Jeremy Holland with Riverside, who was one of my mentors, one of the people that um, I, I still talk to probably on a weekly basis maybe less so now, it depends on the week. Um, but uh, yeah, we, it's not a zero sum game, right? That's the, that's the thing that I, I, I struggle to understand sometimes is, yes, I want to find the best deals and the, you know, have it be in the best scenarios and the best possible, you know, valuation while still being a good steward for the sellers and, and our investors and all that stuff. Um, but I don't have to do that in the absence of like trying to help other people, right? So t taking the, you know, firm spinning out and, and, you know, people starting new platforms aside, I, I remember when I left Riverside, right? Like on a much smaller scale, I was joining an already established firm, but. And you're at Riverside for five years. I was at Riverside for five years, right? I wasn't there for, you know, 25, 30, but a small step at a time, but. I still talk to Jeremy. I still talk to Bob, right? Like we have a good working relationship and we uh, try to help each other. And, you know, I feel like 
I, I want to be that sort of mentor and, and, you know, shepherd someone in their next phase of career. You know, I, I hope to work with the people that I work with today in perpetuity, but like the reality is people move around in this role in particular in business development. It's like very fleeting. Like people move from place to place all the time. It's, um, it's kind of interesting in some ways, but well, yeah. your point about Jeremy is really interesting because I, I think he or Scott Gilbertson wrote an article and it was basically talking about how they saw each other and, you know, and someone said, like, why are you talking? Why are you guys talking to each other? <laughs> and that's really interesting because um, I think that, you know, it's almost it's almost um, relieving and lists of big shoulders when you truly have a change of heart and a change of mind to helping people out. There are obviously points of competition that are proprietary, et cetera. But a lot of things, when you kind of have that giving mentality, you know what is the number one thing that people benefit from? Reputation. Yeah. And then that reputation follows you. I think what Riverside has that quote, which is like, leave good references in your wake. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen that. I, I thought it was just kind of BS corporate slogan that Jeremy was telling me <laughs> in our first yeah. interview, but then after interacting with him, interacting with Bob and the others at Riverside and seeing either texting or LinkedIn or just like how they're trying to be helpful, like that's what it really means. Yeah. And it's, su it's about having a long-term focus yeah. or a long-term perspective. Completely. How, how do you think that Jeremy and Bob and maybe some others at Riverside have influenced who you are both personally and professionally? Yeah. So I would say that my number one mentality, the thing that I think about every day, it's not always easy is, exactly that, that leave great references thing. But, you know, more than that, it's uh, how do I convince people, right, that I am sincere when I say, hey, I, I want to try to help you. What, what can I do for you? And then actually follow through with it and, you know, see it to fruition, right? So let's say, you know, Scotty Gilbertson or some, you know, someone at what's now a different firm calls me and says, hey, I'm, I'm looking for a crane services deal or what have you. And, you know, again, going back to the zero sum game, I can see a deal. It's not a platform for me. It's not an add on for us. We don't have something in that space. You know, 99% chance that person, Scotty has already seen it, but I would rather err on the side of, hey, you know, make sure you saw this one. I, I just was talking to a banker. It's, you know, seems like one that could be a fit for your platform, what have you. Um, and then taking that out to, you know, 15 other interactions over the course of the day. That's the thing that I, I'm trying to do and build here. And it, you know, it obviously it comes from a place, right, of, of where I was trained and, and, uh, and learned. So you've been at Atlantic Street for the past, actually, let's go back to Riverside. I want to talk about Bob. Bob, <laughs> and you talked about Jeremy and, and, and Scotty Gilbertson is now at uh, Thingston. I forget he's been there for a while, but I, I'm curious. I mean, what have you gotten specifically from Bob? You know, a guy who has pioneered business development in this industry. Yeah. 
he is just such a good man. I'm like in awe of him all the time. Um, so he's really kind. He's really generous with his time. Um, he is uh, really down to earth and he just cares more than anything. Like that's the thing that I, I take from Bob. Like he, <laughs> he called me uh, or texted me like within 30 minutes of my baby being born. Now he didn't know obviously like before my parents or anything, he just happened to like send a text and say, Hey, thinking about you, like wonder what's happening. I'm like, Bob, I think you might be the first person to text me like, you know, right after <laughs> my baby was born. So, um, yeah, just those like little things. He, he, he cares and he shows it and he, um, he was at my wedding. He's just a good dude. I, I think really highly of him. I, I, um, and I've interacted with him multiple times and I think the, one of the fascinating things that he, he just doesn't miss details. Like a per, the personal details that you think you're just breeze over. Yeah. Like really, really, he actually, like he's paying attention to everything. He soaks it all in and he'll reference it like on the next call or meeting or, or whatever. But like, it's really interesting. I've, I've learned from him, um, you know, exactly your point about the, the need to have just a deeper sense of care for the profession, for others who you interact with, because those details do matter and they compound yeah. over, over time. And he really, like, he really wants to get to know people personally. That's the thing that I, I take from him. He really wants to like, understand what, what drives people, what motivates people and who they are. I mean, you know, he'll, he'll, and he works hard at it. I've been doing it for right. years, so no, nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look at um, Atlantic Street and when you transitioned over here five years ago, you know, how, how do you think that you've evolved in, in your profession in the past five years? Overwhelming is the answer. You know, stepped in from, yeah, being one of, I think, eight people in North America, probably more, um, to you're the guy, day one, figure it out. No CRM, no, uh, you know, no massive Rolodex that I could just go into and kind of start plugging away at, um, you know, not a whole lot of kind of process orientation, a, a lot of stuff that needed to get figured out and, and not a lot of time. And it was, we're raising new fund. We got to get, you know, one or two new deals across the finish line in this current fund. And, um, go figure it out. And it was, it was a lot day one. I was like, I think, I mean, I call some of my former colleagues still consistently now, but I think I was on the phone with those guys all the time, just being like, I, 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 I want to be like pretty transparent. I was like, I don't know what I'm yeah. doing now. I need to, you know, I need some help. Um, you know, but, but really quickly kind of, got into the swing of things on the business development side. And I would say, you know, professionally what it, it gave me is really an opportunity to understand, you know, on a more holistic basis, how a private equity firm really operates. And this is not disparaging of, of Riverside, but 
they are such a machine and such a big organization, you do kind of get a little bit siloed into certain functional roles, certain sub-functions within functional roles, like, right? So within business development, I was doing, you know, probably a handful of things for a year or two and then, you know, elevated to doing a couple of more things. And, but over time, you know, what I had always aspired to do and to be was, you know, someone who is outsourcing and a relationship manager and, and someone who's getting to uh, really bring value to the organization by, by bringing in deals and, and maintaining kind of the, the relationships for the firm, right? So um, when I got that opportunity at Atlantic Street, I jumped at it and then I was like, oh God, what did I just jump into? You know, in retrospect, do you think that you were underestimating your experience and knowledge or it was accurate. <laughs> you were in over your head and you just had to find some way to swim. No, I think I, I, I want to be generous to myself maybe and generous to my <laughs> employer. Um, I think I was ready. I just think I was nervous. You know, I, it's only natural. I was like, I was 27. I was like figuring a lot of stuff out real time. And I, you know, I can admit. Were I, you the first I, one who, were, were you the first hire in a dedicated no, meeting? No, no, no. Someone had been doing it, which which obviously helped. And there's a lot yeah. of continuity. Um, we didn't overlap, but a lot of stuff that, you know, had been in place that I was able to keep moving. But um, What you know, fund was that back in 2000, summer of 2015? At, at the time. And fund two was a $75 million fund. We were getting ready to, we were kind of pre-marketing fund three, um, but needed to get another deal done. So yeah, it was, it was an inflection point uh, for sure. And there, there was a lot riding on getting a new platform closed, getting, uh, we were in the process of selling a, a big business, a big win for us, but you know, a lot contingent on that getting done. Um, and, and it was a leap of faith for sure. To, for me to go from, you know, $10 billion fund with, you know, fundraising is never a concern. You know, they will churn out, you know, new deals every, you know, with consistency, someone's going to be there to execute on them. Someone's going to be there, man there to manage them um, to, you know, I was an employee six, employee seven at, you know, a firm that had been around for a little bit, but was really kind of just, hitting that scale point where we were raising, you know, a, a much bigger fund. It was a $200 million fund cover. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of risk in it and, and risk. I am pretty risk intolerant. So it was, uh, it was a leap for sure, but everything that was promised, you know, to me when I joined Atlantic street has been executed on and fast forward five years, Five years isn't like no time. That's supposed to be one fun cycle. We're in two fun cycles from from there. So we we've we moved really quickly. Um, Why do you say that you're risk intolerant? Um, I, see, this is the why that I don't I I don't know. I just I just am. I'm like when I think about even the like the biggest purchase that I've ever made, the biggest investment, this, this home that I'm sitting in that you see, I like, I was so conservative with my assumptions about like 
how much I would put down. And I, I don't know why. I just have this mentality of like, at any given moment, something could happen. Something is at risk. And I'm working on it. You know, it's, it's <laughs> awesome, right? but like, you know, the more established I become, the more confident I feel, but it's like, yeah, I think it's a little bit of confidence and it's a little bit of just like maybe how I was brought up, you know, I got to always, always be a little bit on edge, like a little bit concerned with what, what might be happening next. What do you mean? Like why you say the way you're brought up? Uh, like, you know, just, I think I always was brought up to feel like, you know, something could happen. Something bad could happen that would um, disrupt things. That it would change things like really dramatically for, for me, for the family, whatever it might be. Um, I think it, it honestly comes from like multiple generations on, on one side of my family. And that's, um, and that's definitely carried through. And now I'm thinking about my son. I'm like, I want to try to break that, break that cycle. Yeah, that's, I think about that a lot. And, you know, even with parenting, my, our, our three and a half year old daughter, when we are playing outside, for example, I, I err on the side of, ah, she'll figure it out. She'll, if she bumps or she like busts, like she got five stitches in her chin because she was jumping from this thing. And I'm like, okay, maybe I need to reel it in a little bit. But I, I'm on the opposite side of the risk spectrum. And, you know, it, it's even with where we're at now and starting this business, um, or kind of re rewinding, you know, when I started Debt Maven in 2016, my wife and I were on the back porch. Uh, this is in July 2016. We're on the back porch of our 450 square foot Hoboken apartment. Yep. And I was uh, mentioning, hey, it's perfectly fine. I'm more than happy to go get a job. You're pregnant. We need some stability. And then she said to me, like, you'll be kicking yourself when you're 75 if you don't take this particular risk. Yep. And um, one of the things that that taught me was that my perception of risk was far greater than the reality of it. And then I didn't do enough thinking of the downside scenarios and the, okay, what happens if that happens? Yeah. So if I have no money in the bank account, then what's going to happen? I'm probably going to go live, we, <sighs> including the new board, <laughs> could go live with... Yeah, we could go live with family. And is that really that bad? Well, I guess it goes back into like, what are we optimizing for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, this is obviously the joys of working from home going on in my back. <laughs> it could be worse. I could be in 450 square feet, right? So, <laughs> I was there with five people for um, I know, five I, people. I, I, I have like a little bit more perspective in life, right? Like, <laughs> But it's interesting because like your, your measured approach to risk is very opposite of, of how I, of just my, my background. Yeah. And, but that reinforces the need to have different perspectives on a team. Yeah, for sure. Um, good life chat here. <laughs> <laughs> 
good life chat. Right. <laughs> well, man, I think we've covered a ton of ground. Is there anything that we haven't talked about either from your upbringing, your career, Atlantic Street, Riverside, any uh, thing from the DA's office, uh, anything no, from was, Colgate I, University? Yeah, I know. It was, it was really cool in that experience. I was working for, in the last year of Robert Morgenthau, he was, you know, I think he was the DA in Manhattan for like 60 years and it was his last year. And he was, I, I'm, I'm taking, because we talked a lot about Riverside, I'm going to, and we talked a lot about Atlantic Street, I'm going to give the DA a little bit of shine. They don't get enough. Uh, Robert, Robert Morgenthau, 98 years old, I think, when he stopped being district attorney in Manhattan, and he showed up every day at 8 a.m. and he was in the office every day. It was not just like a, hey, he's the DA, you know, in title, really there's all these other people. He was like really the guy. And uh, that's, a, that's a work ethic thing that I, I picked up on pretty early in my career. Crazy. And it also sp speaks to find whatever it is that you can truly be passionate about. Oh yeah. He, that you can work until you're 98 years old. He wanted to be there every day. He didn't have, like, he could have said it at 90, like I'm good. And he kept running every <laughs> two years or four years or I forget what it was, maybe six years uh, for a reason. Like he wanted to be there. So. Well, that is a good message to sign off on. And the key takeaway is be passionate about what you do and do something that you can do until you're 98 years old. Be less <laughs> than me. <laughs> awesome. Great to see you. Right, Talk bye. to you later. Bye. bye.